Hey there. Today, we're going to be covering the movie The Passion of the Christ, which is very controversial, to say the least. Just like all the Based on a True Story episodes, the decision to cover this movie does not mean I agree with the director's views. But of course, this particular one is especially controversial for those who do not agree with those views. To talk about the movie, we'll be chatting with a Christian professor, and I realize this may give a very one-sided and Christian perspective. If you are not a Christian or someone who believes in the Gospels as a source of history, I hope you can still enjoy the episode as a comparison with a well-known story. And if you are someone or know of someone who is interested in coming on the podcast to give a different perspective on this controversial movie, I would love to hear from you. Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. If you're listening to this on the day it's released, then today is Good Friday, when, according to the Christian tradition, today is the day that Jesus was crucified on the cross. That's why today on the podcast, we're going to be learning about the 2004 movie from Mel Gibson, The Passion of the Christ. To help us separate fact from fiction, we'll be chatting with Dr. David Chapman. David is the professor of New Testament and archaeology at Covenant Seminary. He's also authored numerous books, including Trial and Crucifixion of Jesus, Text and Commentary, and Ancient Jewish and Christian Perceptions of Crucifixion, as well as working as the New Testament editor and contributor on the ESV Archaeological Study Bible. Before we connect with David, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, the trial against Jesus was rushed because it was the day before a holy day. Number two, just like we see in the movie, Jesus was forced to carry both the vertical and horizontal cross beams, while the other two prisoners carried only the horizontal beam. Number three, the beatings we see Jesus receive prior to the crucifixion were way more violent than what probably would have happened. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to chat with Dr. David Chapman about the historical accuracy of The Passion of the Christ. A lot of movies start off with a date to establish the timeline, but this movie is a little bit different. So let's begin by clarifying the timeline and how the story begins. There is a date at the beginning of the movie, but it gives us the year 700 BC alongside a passage from Isaiah. Then it jumps to Jesus just after the Last Supper, which I'm going to assume is not the year 700 BC, since BC stands for before Christ. Now, as I was watching this, I got the sense that the filmmakers assume everyone already knows the time and place for how it begins. I'm sure a lot of people do, but for those who don't, can you give us some more context around what we're seeing in the opening sequence of the movie? Yeah, that's well stated and observed. I think the movie does assume a lot from the viewer that they already know at least part of the story. And uh, you're correct that it does open with that quote from Isaiah and gives the date of 700 BC, which is roughly right for Isaiah. The events of the uh, passion of Jesus would be around 30 BC or 30 AD, excuse me. And so give or take uh, two or three years. 
And so you kind of have to adjust for that time difference. Yes. I think probably what the movie's trying to do with that 700 BC is to establish the notion that there was prophetic ideas that were already coalescing in Jesus, especially the idea that by his wounds we are healed, I think is what they're trying to frame. But it is quite confusing if you don't know the story already. In that opening sequence, we do see some soldiers coming to arrest Jesus. And even though right away he admits to being the one that they're looking for, Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek. And then Jesus says something to the effect of, Judas, you betray the son of man with a kiss. Now, we saw Judas earlier in the movie taking a payment from some men that, again, it doesn't really explain. There's not a lot of context there either in the movie. And again, it's just kind of, I think the filmmakers expect you to know a lot of the rest of the story, what's going on here. So can you fill in some of the details of how and why Jesus was arrested? There are assumptions going on there. And I think, you know, our major historical accounts earliest historical accounts, certainly for the life of Jesus, are the Gospels. And all four of the Gospels mention Judas's role in this, and that Judas, who was one of the disciples, Jesus had uh, 12 disciples, kind of famously, uh, and then many others kind of around that orbit, but 12 are listed by name often. And Judas is one of these. It's He's usually said at the beginning of the Gospel account as to being the one who betrayed Jesus, which then shows up later in the Gospels. The movie actually does a pretty good job, if you kind of know the story, giving you a sense of Judas for the offer of money betraying Jesus. But actually, the Gospels themselves indicate a little bit more than that, kind of infer that Judas seems to have been concerned the direction that Jesus was taking this kind of mission, and especially the way that he didn't seem concerned about money and expenditures. So a young lady comes to him and pours an expensive ointment on Jesus, and he considers this a good thing, even though they could have used it in the words of the disciples to pay for the poor. Judas was in charge of the purse. And so there seemed to be a few indications in the throughout the Gospels that Judas was already worried about the direction Jesus was taking things. And he then takes the initiative to go to the leaders who offer him payment in order to betray Jesus. Okay. Now, according to some of the dialogue in the movie, I think it was between like a temple guard and a Roman soldier they give an indication of what he's being arrested for. And they say that he's just a criminal that's breaking temple laws. So that's why they're bringing him for questioning. Was that the reason that was given for why why he was being arrested? Yeah, it's interesting because the Gospels actually present kind of an array of reasons that the Jewish leaders, um, especially the temple leaders, are concerned about Jesus. So just earlier in that week prior to his execution, Jesus had engaged in a triumphal procession from the Mount of Olives uh, across a valley into Jerusalem, which was a very kingly looking act. So it looked like he was acting like the Messiah. Uh, Shortly after that, he goes into the temple precincts and he turns over the tables of the money changers and berates people for turning the temple into basically an economic entity instead of the worship of the Father. So that's hitting the temple leaders where it hurts financially. But throughout Jesus' ministry, he's not been abiding by kind of traditional rabbinic precepts at times. So he heals on the Sabbath day, which one day in a week is supposed to be holy. And so he heals on a day that he probably shouldn't, according to them. Other things his disciples do, refusing to fast, etc. And so these kind of, there's a tension throughout the Gospels leading up to his arrest. And so that actually, I think there's probably multiple factors that come together as to what their motives might be. But then they also need a reason for accusation. 
And so the ideas that are presented in the movie uh, provide some of the different possible reasons for an accusation. But I don't, I don't think you can reduce the reasons that they would want to arrest him just to those accusation reasons. It sounds like there was that tension going on, but those, like the, the procession and things like that were almost the final straw that were pushing them over the edge to, okay, we need to do something about this and we need to arrest this guy. Yeah, that's very well stated. Yes, it is uh, just that way. They have been considering it, according to the Gospels, throughout, trying to find an opportune moment. And now they figure they, they just have to do something, I think is kind of how it's represented in the Gospels. Even though we see that reason for his arrest in the movie, if we head back to the movie's timeline, there is another reason that the the temple leaders kind of give. And we see that once he's taken to a trial in front of Caiaphas, and he says that Jesus has been brought there for being a blasphemer. They call him the Nazarene troublemaker. They say he claims to be the king of the Jews. Uh, he says he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. He cures the sick through magic. Uh, he claims that he's the bread of life. If we don't eat his flesh and drink his blood, then we're not going to inherit eternal life. These are all things that uh, Caiaphas is saying in the movie uh, during the trial. But ultimately, he still doesn't seem to believe what the people are saying. But then he asks Jesus himself, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the living God? Jesus' reply in the movie is simply, I am. And that throws everyone into an uproar. He's pronounced guilty on the spot. And that leads then to what we see throughout the rest of the movie. But how well did the movie do showing this trial? As you can imagine, with all things that have to do with the New Testament, there's an immense amount of study and scholarship that's been involved in looking at this. And I I think an overall take would be that they do a, a generally a fine job there's a lot of little pieces <laughs> I would say, you know, might be done better in another way. One of those uh, is that they approach Jesus and, and accuse him of blasphemy at the beginning. In the trial narratives, the portions of the Gospels that specifically speak to his trial, that's actually a, a charge that comes up at the end. I'm not sure that it's presented exactly at the beginning. And several of the things that are put on the lips of his accusers are not explicitly stated in the Gospels. The Gospels do say that multiple accusers came forth, but they couldn't agree in terms of their testimony. And so Caiaphas does show, or the Jewish leadership shows some frustration that they're not able to get a series of witnesses that can agree that they can actually condemn and base simply on that witness. And it seems then at that point that Caiaphas does turn to Jesus and asks him to kind of commit if he's the Messiah or not. And I think best uh, scholarship on this that I know of would indicate that the charge that he's actually after is what would be called misleading the people. Because to say that you're a Messiah is in itself not blasphemous. You know, you have to malign the name or misuse the name of God in some way for it to be blasphemy. And so it seems to be misleading the people. And yet Jesus's response, and they actually do a pretty good job with this in the movie, isn't just, yes, I am the Messiah. But it's, you know, and I'm going to paraphrase, from now you'll see the Son of Man coming on glory at the right hand of, of the Father. What he's done there is he's actually combined some Old Testament bits from the Psalms and from the book of Daniel. And he's kind of defined the Messiah he is. And, and he's a much more, not just a human person, but now he's actually sitting at the right hand in heaven of God, which is effectively claims to deity. And that's what allows the charge of blasphemy. I think a, a fair way to read the trial is Jesus has is, is been a real problem 
they've concerned about the religious movement he's doing. They're concerned about the economic aspects of it, et cetera. And they're looking for a charge. Jesus gives them a charge uh, that finally works for them, which is blasphemy. And the fact that everybody hears him utter that then allows Caiaphas to say, you have all heard what he said, this is blasphemy. And now the people around actually can become witnesses in the formal trial, which actually, I think, happens the next morning. And that's another thing where I, I think they could have actually presented it better than they did in the movie. So there's there's multiple trials. They've kind of condensed them into one. And one's at the evening, but I think it's actually kind of a hearing preparing the charges for the formal trial, which is the next morning. And the movie doesn't present the morning trial at all. Okay. Well, what you were saying earlier about having multiple witnesses and them not really agreeing, when you were saying that, it threw into my head about how they paid Judas. So is there any possibility that maybe they were paying some of these witnesses to come forward and try to say what they wanted him to say, but perhaps because they were throwing this all together, you know, if the procession was only a week beforehand, it sounds like it was almost a throwing this all together almost last minute was kind of haphazardly put together. I think that's uh, well stated in most respects. I think, yeah, haphazard is a, it was, it was kind of a need of a moment. It was the night before the day before a holy day. And so they're under a very tight time frame there because in order for this execution to happen, it has to happen in the course of the next day, which means they have to proclaim Jesus worthy of death via blasphemy. They then have to take him to Pilate. Pilate has to proclaim him worthy of death. Then they have to execute him and he, he needs to be taken down from the cross all before the holy day. So they're under this very tight itinerary. I would say, I don't, I don't know that there's any evidence in the Gospels that they were paying witnesses or anything like that, but I think they were obviously seeking some reason to kind of bring about something that they really felt was necessary in the moment, been seeking for some time. You mentioned Pilate, and I, I did want to ask you about that because the movie shows Caiaphas bringing Jesus to Pontius Pilate. And according to the movie, it's because I think Caiaphas says something about how it's unlawful for them to condemn a man to death. Now, before we dive into what we're actually seeing in the movie there. I do want to ask about some of those leaders that we see because there's Caiaphas and then there's Pilate. And then in the movie, he mentioned someone named King Herod. Uh, and even though the movie is only focusing on Jesus's trial here, it seems to imply that there's these different governmental leaders and it's not unique to his trial, but anytime there's a criminal, these are the people that you have to basically get the okay from. Can you explain the power structure at that time of who would have been in charge of what for convicting a criminal? This is another example where the movie kind of assumes a lot. And again, uh, you know, often a knowledge of the Gospels or and, and more of that kind of history of the period and these names, et cetera. You know, I think in general terms, what you have is uh, that the Jewish people had long had a body that was responsible not just for theological discussion and overseeing the Jewish people in that way, but also for hearing some of the most important judicial decisions. This is called the Sanhedrin. And for a long time, it had the power of, of capital punishment for putting somebody to death. But there's a statement in the in later rabbinic works, uh, one called the Talmud, that indicates that 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the temple was destroyed in, in AD 70. And so if you go back to 30 AD CE, it seems that they had just lost the right to, to, to condemn somebody to death. And so they couldn't actually carry out the death penalty. They needed the Romans to cooperate. And so Pilate 
then, as always is the case in a, in a Roman province, the provincial governor or procurator has the ability to put somebody to death. And so he had the formal ability to do that. Herod is in charge of the Galilee, uh, which is north of Judea. And so he was a king in that area, but not down in Jerusalem. So Galilee is north of Jerusalem, near the Sea of Galilee. And so uh, because Jesus was from the area of Galilee, he could officially be punished by the king of that territory, who uh, also was probably granted the right by the Romans to put someone to death. So, you know, if you're kind of thinking through power structures, there's the Jewish leaders who are most motivated to put Jesus to death. There's the Romans who are going to be concerned about anybody who claims to be king of the Jews, because that might be a, a, you know, a revolution waiting to happen. And they're mostly concerned about political and economic peace. And then Herod has a potential right as well up in Galilee. So it starts with the Jewish leaders who can't put somebody to death. They, They toss it to Pilate who could put somebody to death. He's not sure he has Roman legal grounds for doing so. So he sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. And that's the sequence you see going on in the movie. Yeah. And most of that's represented in the Gospels. Again, there's more detail in the Gospels, but most of that's represented. One thing that we see with Pilate is once it comes back from Herod, he tries to appease the crowd. He's offering to release either Jesus or a notorious murderer named, in, in the movie it's pronounced Baraba. Um, I've always pronounced it Barabbas. But the movie seems to imply that Pilate was kind of wanting to let Jesus go. I think we saw that his wife had a dream the night before warning against convicting a holy man. And so Pilate wants to let Jesus go. And so he's offering the choice of Jesus who non nonviolent crime versus this notorious murderer. And then the crowd calls his bluff and asks for Baraba to be released and for Jesus to be crucified. Is that a pretty accurate representation of what happened? Well, in general terms, yes. There's a number of characters that Mel Gibson kind of fills out more. So you mentioned one of them, Pilate's wife, who we, we do know from the Gospels receives a vision, but there's not much extent, extended kind of discussion of that. She doesn't have a name. There's not, you know, there's a lot of interaction between Pilate and his wife in the movie. And so there's been extra scenes put in, I think, for artistic reasons and, and such. The mention of Barabbas, though, is repeated in all the Gospels. And there's an agreement in the Gospels as well that he was involved as a, a robber. Really, the, the Greek term is leistes, which is a brigand. And the brigands of Judea in this time period often were also involved in insurrections and many revolts. And so some of the Gospel accounts indicate that he was actually involved in a revolt and had been involved in murdering people in the revolt. And so he was a pretty heinous guy. It is a striking choice represented in all the Gospels, Jesus or Barabbas, and that is put to the people, and the people vote for Barabbas to be set free. So, yeah, that there's, uh, you know, many of the dimensions of that are accurate. I will say that the whole kind of interaction between Pilate and Claudia, his wife, because it's much more expansive, I think actually makes Pilate seem like a more sympathetic guy, just kind of caught in between. And I'm not sure if that's the fairest read of the text there. Pilate is actually not complying with Roman law and that he ultimately allows the crowds to sway him to convict somebody that he has given clear indication that he shouldn't convict. So I think most Roman readers of the Gospels actually would would not think of Pilate as a fully sympathetic guy here. But he gets a lot more sympathy in the movie. 
I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. One thing that the movie does mention when he's giving the crowd the choice is, I think he, I don't remember the exact line, but he says something to the effect of how every year I give you a, a prisoner to release. Was that something that would actually happen and kind of be a reason why maybe he puts that to the crowd of Barabbas or Jesus? Yes. I mean, that's certainly how it's, uh, it's stated in the Gospels. I will say outside the Gospels, there's really limited evidence about these kind of things. Philo, who is a Jewish author in Alexandria, Egypt, uh, mentions that it's regularly the case that people are released from punishment during the emperor's birthday. So the idea that there might be certain holy celebrations, the emperor's birthday is a holy celebration given the imperial cult, you know, I think resonates pretty well with uh, with history. The gospels are very clear on this matter. And so I, I take that to be, you know, historically very plausible. In the movie, there is, after giving the choice between Jesus and Barabbas, there's another point where we see Pilate almost trying to appease the crowd, but not really going to the point of of condemning Jesus to be crucified. And that's when he orders a very severe punishment, but he makes sure to give the order that Jesus is not to be killed. And then we see the Roman soldiers kind of seem to go too far with the punishment because they're they're it's it's a horrible horrible scene in the movie for sure um, but then when the roman commander comes and sees what the soldiers are doing he's appalled at what's happened did that really happen there where um we see the roman soldiers i think they even use like a, a cat of nine tails and they use winded sticks and just beating him to a pulp this is one of the areas that i think is most expansive is a generous way to put it but least historical in the text there's several issues with it that have been pointed out over the years. Um, one is the sequence of when Jesus is beaten. It seems to be out of the order of when it's done in the Gospels. Uh, secondly, like you indicate, I mean, they beat him. They give him a thorough set of beatings. So 
one way of beating an antiquity was to do kind of 40 minus one or have a set number of times you, you strike somebody. And they do a full set of beatings with kind of canes or rods, as you indicate. And Jesus is bruised and injured and bleeding and he falls to the ground. Then he stands up again and then they start it all over again and do it again with the cat of nine tails kind of thing. And there's a whole question of whether the cat of nine tails was actually even used in Rome. And certainly they've already beat him. There's not going to engage in another sequence. And, and that none of that's represented in the Gospels. The, the, cat, the character you mentioned of Abinader is not named in the, in the Bible or in the earliest, you know, kind of historical texts of the Gospels, et cetera. Many of the, these kind of things come from more medieval tradition and are much less probable. And I think the viciousness of it, it was certainly a very vicious act, um, crucifixion and the things that preceded it. But I think Gibson's expansion on that beyond was historically likely and also probably what beyond uh, a human body could actually sustain. Some have pointed out that Jesus probably would have been already dead, you know, if Gibson's movie is correct, long before he could even be asked to carry his cross, etc. So there's the intensity and the violence of that is probably excessive. It was a very violent act, but they did not quite that violent. And that was something that struck me as well as, as I'm watching this. How is he still alive? I mean, it's especially once they go with the, the cat and nine tails, because that's just, you know, ripping off parts of flesh and it it's it's horrible. But just thinking of just the blood loss and I mean I'm not a doctor, but I don't know how he would have survived that. Yeah, that's, and I, I'm not a doctor either. There's one guy who's a fairly famous kind of medical examiner person who's looked a lot at the crucifixion of Jesus, a guy named Aizuki. And he, he has uh, said that this is just not physically possible. And I think that's very likely. Uh, yeah, it's it, the, the blood loss is huge. So you may remember afterwards, uh, Mary comes and kind of sops up the blood. And that's, again, uh, all of that is additional to the Gospels. Mary's much more present in the movie than she is in the Gospels. And I think what's going on there is Gibson's heading towards kind of a theological motivation for that, to have Mary sopping up the blood of Jesus, because in kind of later medieval tradition, she too can become a dispenser of grace and of of forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. And so that kind of gives her, you know, a collection of blood that she can dispense. And so I think there's things going on with that. But the, the sheer quantity, et cetera, is... Yeah, you know, I think he would have been dead based on that. So there's, you know, there's things going on there that are difficult. And, you know, and there's many other scenes that are added. Satan shows up and there's other things that are going on that are clearly being added to the story that are thematic and they often have theological motivation, but they're not based on our earliest historical records. Okay, but the the punishment itself, that the punishment happened, that was something that Pilate did order before he made the decision to crucify. Is that correct? Jesus is maltreated by the Jewish guards beforehand. The sequence of whether he was actually punished by Pilate, it seems to me that he was actually, the formal punishment didn't start until after he had agreed to Jesus being the one who would be accepted and not Barabbas. So I think that that sequence doesn't seem to accord with the Gospels either. Okay, that's what you're saying, kind of being a little bit out of order. Okay, okay. Yeah, because in, in the movie, we do see, we, we see him succumbing to the pressure of crucifying Jesus, but that's after that punishment takes place. 
another aspect of that that's been highlighted by Gibson, I think, in the movie, and I, I think this is an artistic choice, is he has Caiaphas kind of taking the lead constantly and being the one. So Caiaphas is the high priest, and he's the one who is kind of constantly calling for Jesus's death. And many times what's being put on his lips or in the Gospels is kind of a general outcry from the, the people. And I think what Gibson is doing there artistically is he's, uh, you know, kind of, and this worked even better kind of 15 years ago or so in movie history, you know, uh, and the way that a lot of Gibson's movies are kind of good versus evil. And you have personifications of good and you have bad guys. So you have, you know, and Caiaphas is clearly represented as a bad guy in this. And he, he, none of his decisions seem to be good. None of them seem to have good warrant to them or reason to them. And uh, this is one of the reasons that I think some people have found the movie to have anti-Semitic elements is, is that he becomes this kind of personification of Jewish opposition to Jesus. Not sure if that's a fully fair read of what Gibson's doing. Uh, there's a lot of debates about that. But it is the case that Caiaphas becomes this kind of you know, juxtaposition to Jesus. And you, you kind of have Satan and Caiaphas are the two bad characters. Jesus, Mary, and a few people that support them are good characters. Pilate's somewhere in between. And it just seems to be kind of playing out more as a movie, you know, kind of a movie type story than it does quite the way it does in the Gospels. If we head back to the movie, after Pilate decides to to crucify Jesus. We do see him washing his hands of the matter as he agrees to do that. And then we see, as you mentioned uh, before, Jesus is forced to carry his cross down the street. I thought it was interesting. He's forced to carry the full cross. We see two other prisoners that have to carry theirs, but it's just kind of the cross beam that's strapped to them. We have the Roman soldiers following along and, and pushing the crowd back, you know, stay away from the prisoners. Uh, all the while, they're, they're whipping Jesus each time he stumbles under the weight of the cross. Eventually, he can't carry the cross anymore, and one of the Roman soldiers orders someone nearby, a guy named Simon of Serene, to carry the cross instead. Now, how much of that actually happened? General contours, yes. Details, problematic. That's that's kind of how... But the, part of this is, you know, these are some of the most studied texts in all of human history, the Gospels on this. And so getting all the details, you know, people really care about that. So it's certainly the case that Jesus carried his crossbeam. It's the case that Simon of Cyrene had to help him in that. But one of the things you aptly pointed out is, is that Jesus is carrying the whole cross, both kind of the horizontal beam as well as the vertical beam. I've spent uh, much of my academic career studying ancient sources on crucifixion, Greek, Latin, Aramaic, Hebrew, etc., and uh, there's relatively few sources that speak about carrying the cross, but those that do, pretty clearly, it's the cross beam and not the whole cross. And so uh, this distinction that's made between the others only carry the cross beam, the two thieves on either side of him, and uh, Jesus carries the whole cross just has no basis in history, certainly not in the Gospels. The other aspect of that is, you know, later and when you see uh, the crucifixions happen, Jesus has been just scourged and, as you said, kind of nine tails. I mean, there's every square inch of him is, is bloody and torn to shreds. And the other two thieves have undergone none of that. And it seems much more the case that a, a standard part of crucifixion was to do some torturing before the person then carries their beam to the cross. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's like he's turned the volume way up on Jesus's torturing. 
in excess of what is likely and turned it way down on the other two thieves. And that was also part of the carrying the crossbeam. And so the, the result is just uh, an unevenness that's I, I, probably not historical. So again, general contours, yeah, fine. But, you know, the, the degree that's going on there, it's the, it's the volume issue that's really the problem, I would suggest. You mentioned Mary earlier cleaning up the blood. And as Jesus is carrying the cross down, the movie makes a point to show that Mary is always watching, like she's following along. I mean, there's points where I think she turns away because she just can't stand to see what she's witnessing. But was Mary actually there following along as Jesus was carrying the cross? Another good question, observation. Again, in the Gospels, uh, Mary's not there. She's there at the end, at at the crucifixion act itself, uh, but she just receives very brief mention. And so all of those instances with Mary really come to us more from medieval tradition. Uh, So one of the things that Gibson's trying to do is integrate what are called the 14 stations of the cross, which are, if you go to Jerusalem, uh, there's a, a pilgrim way that's called the Via Dolorosa. And there are 14 Roman numerals as you go through that each have to do with an event, several of which, actually the majority of which, are taken from the Gospels, but several also come in kind of from medieval tradition. And so Mary factors in one of those where where Mary and Jesus meet, and that's represented in the movie. Uh, Veronica, um, who comes and wipes Jesus's face with her headscarf, that's also from kind of medieval tradition. None of these are represented in the earliest historical sources. And so kind of historically, I query these, whether they actually happen that way. Um, but they are kind of connected with this later uh, devotional tradition of the 14 stages of the cross, which the idea of stages of the cross, maybe as early as 6th century, the idea of 14 comes about in the later medieval period, 13th century or later, that specific number becomes kind of instantiated kind of even later in the medieval tradition and uh, becomes kind of officially recognized, receives official sanction from the Pope and the Catholic tradition. And so kind of, uh, he's following that, which is, again, a pious devotional tradition, but maybe not the most accurate history in all of its respects. Okay, well, I, I appreciate you clarifying that, because, yeah, that, that is something that the movie makes a point to to mention. But again, it's it doesn't really explain why it's making a point of that. Yeah, I think, especially with the Mary material, um, it's very interesting, because throughout the movie, Mary kind of shows up at the moments when Jesus is most weighed down, most seems willing to just go ahead and die or not accomplish his full purpose of being crucified, et cetera. And she comes up and kind of either via looking at one another or sometimes she's physically present with him. It enables him to endure and to go on. And again, I think this has to do with the elevation and later traditions about the role that Mary played. And part of that has to do with her being the handmaiden of God, which is referred to later in, in the movie, and this idea of her also dispensing merit and things like this that are, again, not in the Gospels, but are being put in because of this elevation of Mary that goes on as the church proceeds through time, especially in the Catholic tradition, a certain degree in the, in the Orthodox tradition as well. Well, we're at the point in the movie where we see the crucifixion itself being depicted, and we see Jesus being put on the cross. His arms are tied with rope first, and then the hammer nails through the center of his hand, and then they cross his feet. So one is on top of the other, and they nail his feet to the cross. After this, they turn the cross over, so Jesus is hanging just off the ground. They bend the back of the nails behind on the back of the cross, and then finally they raise it and anchor it to the ground, so he's left hanging there. But he doesn't die right away. It takes quite some time for him to die a slow, excruciating death. And 
the movie all does imply that this is all happening in a single day because Jesus mentions to one of the other prisoners hanging there that today you will be with me in paradise. So how well did the movie do portraying the act of crucifixion itself? Yeah, I think, you know, again, general contour is fine. The questions are always in the details. So yes, in the course of the day, certainly the Gospels mention that it started in the third hour of the day, so around 9 a.m. Jesus seems to be dead by about the, the ninth hour of the day, which would be around 3 p.m. in the afternoon. The other two are hastened to death by um, shattering their shins. And the result is of, of all that trauma is that all three are dead in time to, to remove them before the holy day. So so all of that general contour is, is there. Um, so because I, I, you know, I studied these ancient sources on crucifixion, et cetera, um, I, I'm often asked about the particularities. So, you know, uh, there's some of those that I thought were represented well and some that I, I had some concerns about. I will say our sources generally don't describe the exact methodology. Uh, very few of them mention aspects of method, method. The Gospels accounts are actually some of the most detailed accounts of any crucifixion from antiquity. And so we have kind of limited evidence. Part of our evidence indicates that the Romans could crucify people in a variety of postures. There seems to kind of be a, a main way that might be expected, but there's a variety that's allowed from it. The use of nails in crucifixion is testified in a variety of sources. So that's certainly the case. We have one a major example of a crucified body that shows up in the archaeological record, actually, interestingly, just outside of Jerusalem in a place called Givat Habmashar. Uh, it was discovered in the, if I remember correctly, in the 60s or 70s at the latest. And um, this has, uh, there's a, a, um, a heel bone with a, with a nail through it. And uh, that becomes our, our main physical evidence for crucifixion from antiquity. We, we know that thousands, really tens of thousands of people were, in, were crucified in antiquity, and we have very little evidence of this in the archaeological record. There's one other possible discovery that's made in the north of Italy in the Po Valley that's kind of recently come to light in the last decade or so. And so that limited evidence, if you look at it, it one of the things is that the nails seem to have been often reused. And so, for example, when you mentioned rightly that in the movie, you know, they pound the nail all the way through the cross and then they bend it to kind of keep it from coming out. Well, that's not very likely in my estimation because they actually want to be able to pull the nail out. They have to be able to get the guy down from the cross anyway, and then they're going to want to use, reuse the nails, you know, because those kind of materials are uh, costly and necessary in the ancient world. So there's little things like that that I might query. The position of the cross that the hand people often ask is it would the nail go through kind of the palm of the hand or maybe further down on the wrist? And in most art, especially uh, Renaissance and medieval art, and, and even before the medieval period, tends to represent the nail going through the palm. But the Greek term for hand that's used in the New Testament and the Gospels really can reference the wrist area as well. And so there's a variety of scholars that have debated, you know, what what could have supported the nail. Um, but uh, sadly, our, our kind of crucifixion, our few archaeological examples, there's no evidence of nails. The hands are often missing. And if they are there, there's no evidence of where the nail was. And so it's not been kind of clarified from the archaeological record. So those debates kind of continue going on. So we could, you know, the other aspect is the block that Jesus stands on that's often represented in medieval and even early medieval art. But 
We do have some graffiti that are kind of used about crucifixion in general from around the time of the first century. And uh, those seem to represent the, the person straddling the cross, if you would, and a single nail from the outside of the heel to the inside of the heel on each side. So that you, the person, the, the, the beam is in between and the heels are on either side. And that would account better with the one archaeological find we have from the Jerusalem area. So I tend to wonder about that too. So, so you know, but th- those are the kinds of things that people ask me all the time. And I, I have to say, again, you know, limited evidence, but I don't think, uh, I think Gibson is going with actually the prevalent presentation in Christian art from early medieval up until even most recent times. But I'm not sure that that's actually first century practice. You mentioned them having to break the shins of the other prisoners in order to kill them, but then Jesus dying first. And the way the movie portrays it, the impression that I got as I, as I was watching, one of the big reasons why Jesus dies first is he was practically already dead as he was carrying the cross down the street because of this just absolutely brutal punishment that we talked about earlier. Uh, but if that punishment didn't necessarily happen, was he the one that that died first and then the other prisoners had to be killed like we see in the movie? Or was that that timing off as well? So the gospel accounts also represent that. I think that's presented pretty well in the movie, that Jesus does die without the soldiers needing to do anything else, whereas the other two, their shins are broken. There's a whole debate in crucifixion studies about what causes death. Some have suggested asphyxiation. Some have suggested kind of a hypovolemic shock. There's probably uh, the best studies, and it's amazing, every two or three years in the medical literature, major medical journals, people have another idea for, for why crucifixion killed people in antiquity. We know it did, is kind of what. And I think the best accounts are there's probably multiple factors that could take in, uh, into account. And shock could be re- produced by any of them, and pretty early on. Uh, Jesus had been clearly maligned for a long time. The vehemence of, of the beating that would have probably happened with all of them whether it was harsher on Jesus or not, could produce a death from anybody. And the carrying of the cross and these kind of things make it so that the body's already ready to go into a, a you know, kind of complete collapse. And so that seems uh, very probable. And then John's gospel does indicate something that happens in the movie, which is that the spear is pushed into Jesus's side, blood and water come out to verify that he's dead. I will say that's another point where I think there's kind of theological addition made because what comes out is this immense quantity of blood and then this immense quantity of water, which is not represented in the gospel account. And I think especially the water kind of pours out on Mary and on John and even on the soldier. And it seems to be kind of this cleansing of them that I think that's, uh, you know, the theological thing that he's heading to, not really historical. But yeah, I think, you know, the, the gospel accounts are very clear, and, and the, certainly the Roman soldiers would have been quite adept at figuring out if somebody's dead before they bury him. That's their job, and so, you know, that's, I think, well represented. You make a good point about the spear and the, and the blood and the water, because earlier in the movie, there was a, they also made a point of, I think Mary was trying to give him some water while he was carrying the cross, and one of the soldiers comes and, and knocks it out, because so you can tell that he's parched and he's thirsty, and that, that makes sense. I mean considering what we see him go through. But then later on, of course, he's got all this water. He seems pretty well hydrated when this spear pierces him. Yeah, there's an astounding amount of water. It's almost like a, a little hose in a sense. And blood too. And he's already been bleeding for quite a while. So those things aren't represented in historical sources, but they're also, I'm not sure that they're physically possible. 
but but again, I think this is where the movie, in my mind, is has a really profound artistic sensibility to it. It's very gruesome. I mean, I, I remember back in the day that it came out, Roger Ebert called it the most violent movie he'd ever seen. And so there's certainly that. But there's a lot to appreciate about the, you know, the camera angles, the, the characterizations, the, um, the use of light, and a lot of thematic material that's brought in. And I think that's part of what's going on here. These are artistic choices that are you know, not necessarily physically or historically. That's not the main principle that's being at play there. According to the movie, just moments after Jesus's death, there is a massive earthquake that happens and it leaves a big crack down the center of the temple in Jerusalem. Did that actually happen? Well, that's also not in the gospel accounts. So again, it's not in the earliest historical. There is a striking thing in the historical accounts that the curtain of the temple is torn in two, which seems kind of miraculous. And there's also the mention of earthquake, especially in Matthew's gospel, um, which is, you know, very plausible that Jerusalem is right next to the Dead Sea and the, the Jordan River, and that's that's an extension of the African Rift Valley. You're, you're right on a tectonic plate there, so earthquakes happen in that area all the time. So that makes sense, but the you know, the actual cracking of the temple, which is quite, I mean, it looks like, you know, a, a, an earthquake movie from, you know, something that would take place in California or something like that. It's, it's um, it, yeah, that that's... Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Artistic license, okay. how we say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, the impression I got from the movie was it was showing that because they had made a point to mention that Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple and then rebuild it three days later, it was kind of that pr- prophecy coming true almost. You know, we, we see, okay, he's now that he's dead, he's destroyed the temple through this, this earthquake. And there's, you know, whether it be you know divine intervention or whatever it may be, that was the impression I got from the movie was why this was happening. Yeah, I think I think thematically you're correct. Yeah, I think that's maybe what's going on with that. I wondered that as well, uh, but again, that's the, the gospels don't push to that. It's artistic license. After he is killed, we see Jesus's mother Mary, who witnessed the entire thing as we talked about earlier. He, uh, but she's also with John uh, and another woman named Mary, Mary Magdalene. And they take the body of Jesus down from the cross. I think the Roman soldier who pierced the Jesus side with his spear, Cassius, is there as well. But as I was watching this, it seemed like the Roman just spent a lot of effort keeping people away from Jesus as they're walking down the streets. And then after he's dead, they don't seem to care anymore. They let Mary, John, and Mary Magdalene take the body down and do whatever they want with it. Thinking of this from the Roman's perspective... As far as I'm aware, Jesus was just another prisoner who was crucified. So I would expect that if they let this happen for Jesus, they'd let this happen for any prisoner's family or friends to just take the body down after they're dead. Is that a fair assessment of what the Romans allowed at the time, or was there a special case for Jesus in the eyes of the Romans? It's another place where I think uh, you're right to, to point out that the movie is assuming that somebody kind of already knows something of the story. So in the gospel accounts, there's a, a man who is a member of the Sanhedrin, so he's a priestly figure named Joseph of Arimathea, who goes to uh, Pontius Pilate and requests the right to bury Jesus. And Pilate grants that right, and it seems to be based on that, that Jesus is removed from the cross, and that Pilate, along with a man named Nicodemus in John's Gospel, take him to be buried in a, in a new tomb. I, I will say, again, you know, if you go to uh, Christian art, and again, medieval tradition, there's there's an expanded role of Mary and uh, John in particular, as well as Mary Magdalene. 
there. So that there's a, a famous series of arts, a piece of art that are called the Pieta. And so Michelangelo and, and a, 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 you know, kind of every famous artist does this. And it's, it's a representation, uh, especially in the Renaissance, I should say, or Renaissance and medieval period. It's a representation at the foot of the cross of Jesus bloody in the arms of Mary, his mother. And she's holding his body and she's, she often in those representations, she's facing the viewer of the painting. And it seems to me that that's exactly what Gibson is, is wanting to imitate is the final scene before it fades to black. And then Jesus ends up in a tomb is, uh, that very famous piece of kind of Renaissance art, the Pieta that's going on there. And so he, he's, pushing towards that end, he skips some of the important stuff you need to know. You know, Joseph of Arimathea is represented briefly in the scene, but he and Nicodemus fall out of the scene. And what you really see is Mary with Jesus and Magdalene and, and John right next to them. And so that's what's going on. So the historicity of that is question. I think the idea that Jesus was, was taken down at Pilate's authority makes good sense. Again, all the bodies are going to be taken down because of the holy day the next day. And so there would have been um, special access granted to Joseph and Marathia. Was it possible that Mary was there because she's part of Joseph's group? That's that's possible. But, you know, we're, we're kind of pushing again more into the artistic and the medieval than we are into the early sources. And that makes sense too, just from a, a straight up movie perspective. We see that a lot where they not going to bother to introduce a new character at this point because then you have to explain this new character and you have to explain all that. So Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus like having to introduce them and show them going to pilot that that just extends the, the timeline of, of the movie itself. So I could see how they would want to speed that up. Yeah, I think you're right. That's probably part of the decision that's going on there. At the very end of the movie, you mentioned it, the tomb, and you know, it looks like a cave that we see in the camera's inside and we see a stone being rolled away from the entrance, which lets the light inside. The light hits a body that's lying there. It's uh, wrapped in cloth. And and then the body sinks in as if, or the cloth sinks in, I should say, as if the body within has just simply disappeared. And then the camera pans over. We see Jesus sitting there. There's no more blood, no scars, ex- well, except for one. You you see as he gets up to walk out, you see a hole in the hand where the, where the nail was. But there's not a lot of more explanation than that. And so I think, again, this is another example of where the movie just assumes that you know what's going on here and what's happened. Uh, can you fill in some more context around the way that the movie comes to an end? Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I, I remember seeing the movie back in 2004 when it came out. And I was asked to speak to some different groups of people about this, uh, some academic, some kind of church groups. And um, I, I remember just being disappointed at just that because my feeling was if, if you had walked there and you had never heard the Gospels, never read the Gospels or anything like that, you'd be just like, what in the world is going on here? Um, and so it, it's another place where it's really assumed that uh, there's a resurrection, you know, which is what, again, earliest Gospels, uh, the early sources mention not only Jesus's death and his burial in his tomb, but then a couple of days, well, three days later, technically, but on the Sunday that Jesus uh, arises. And then there's a variety of kind of resurrection accounts, including ones where he invites the disciples to feel the wounds that are still there, the scars of the wounds that are still there. I think it's striking the way that's represented in the movie is that there's there's still a hole in Jesus's hand. It's not just a little scar, it's, it's a hole. And what such a scar is supposed to look like, I don't know. But the, the idea that he was risen, 
I was pointed out at the time, and I, I was among those that did. I, if I had a theological kind of area that I'd be disappointed in the movie, it's so much focus on the death of Jesus, which has historically been very true in uh, in the church traditions, all the church traditions, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, etc. Very important that. But also those same traditions also emphasize that, you know, that's not where it ended, that there's a resurrection. And there's just a quick nod to it. And if you don't know the story, you don't. I think it's just very confusing to the viewer right there. Uh, of course, you know, famously, and you probably know this, but uh, three or four years ago, Mel Gibson was talking about making a sequel, and I don't know if it'll ever happen to this, a, a sequel movie on the resurrection. And so um, if that happens, that would be, uh, you know, absolutely fascinating. It might kind of remedy that in some ways, but yeah, I think there's something a little bit lost there. Yeah. But that wasn't his point. Uh, he was very clear on, you know, his point was to emphasize the passion of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, the meaning of that, which is a very Lenten theme, you know, the 40 days leading up to Good Friday and Easter in the, in the Christian calendar, and a very strong devotional theme, especially in the, the, the branch of Christianity that he's involved in. And so I appreciate that. I just think there's something lacking if you don't get to the resurrection in terms of Christian history as well. So. Well, speaking of Mel Gibson, let's let's say you were directing this movie. What's something that you would have done differently? I think uh, I was reflecting on this because it had been a number of years. And of course, I viewed it again um, just in the last couple of days preparing to talk about it here. And I remember all of these kind of historical matters and the sense that the general contours of the history are are good and they're, they're represented well. But he's added a lot of this artistic representation and a lot from medieval tradition. I actually think he does a nice job in the opening scenes kind of signaling to us he's not going to stay with the earliest historical records. He's not going to stay with the Gospels. This is going to be artistry. So he takes us to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he gives us this interaction. The first words that we hear Jesus say and the disciples say back to him are not in the Gospels. So if you know the Gospels, you already know he's departing from that. He's going to give us an interpretation. Satan shows up in the Garden in a way that you know, is not at all in any of the earliest, any early historical records. And yet there's theological themes that are going on there. Again, if you know something about Christian theology, uh, that this battle with Satan, and then there's a snake that comes slithering out of Satan, and Jesus eventually crushes his heel, which is a reference to the first book of the Bible, the, of the book of Genesis, and it has this sense of Jesus crushing Satan represented theological tradition. So all of that's important. All of it is theological and all of it is aesthetic and artistic. And so in many ways, I, I really appreciate this discussion. I think it's an important one to have about the history dimension of this. But it's it seems to me that the the movie is almost best viewed as a as a work of artistry. And in that way it, it stands up, I think, quite well. And I admire it, especially in those terms. I think if you were asking me one of the things I would have done, I would have been a little bit more careful with the Jewish characterization to represent both the, the fact that there were many Jewish followers of Jesus and then there were Jewish opponents of Jesus. Because I think Amel Gibson opened himself up to um, some charges of anti-Semitism there that didn't need to happen based on the Gospels. The Gospels themselves are written by Jewish people in kind of a prophetic way of saying, you know, we need to turn to this man who's the Messiah, and those who don't, you know, are going to be judged for that. And so in that, it works kind of like Old Testament prophecy or 
you know, the prophecy in, in the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. And so, sadly, in if you know anything about even fairly early third, uh, fourth century Christian tradition and heading in the medieval period, there's a, a great deal of anti-Semitism that does come into charging the Jewish people with putting Jesus to death. And so we always need to be sensitive to that, represent all sides of that, kind of show Roman complicity. That's where I would have maybe shown Pilate as being less of a equivocating guy, and then maybe not have put Caiaphas so front and center in ways that aren't representing the Gospels. So I might have done stuff like that uh, out of that concern. But I, I, I greatly admire the movie for its artistry. Well, I, I know we've talked a lot about the historical side, and you mentioned the uh, things that are thrown in there from a theological perspective. So looking at it from from that way, from a theological perspective, is there anything that you felt was added that didn't really need to be, or maybe that was omitted that you wish had been in there? Or was there anything from a theological perspective that you would change about the movie? I think I should start by saying things that I really admire, because the first time I saw the movie, I was really bothered by the Satan thing, who shows up multiple times. Uh, not just in the garden, but um, a few times. And there's this very odd scene that people continue to ask me about, like, while Jesus is being whipped, Satan's in the background carrying this baby, you know, and there's just, there's weird stuff going on there. I think to give a charitable read to that, you know, what Satan is trying to do is oppose Jesus's notion that God is his father. And uh, surely a father would not let his son go through this kind of thing is what Satan tries to tempt Jesus by. And so I think that's something you know, that's going on there. And, and there's this point after Jesus is, it says it's finished and, you know, he has uh, accomplished what he set out to do. Satan cries out, you know, and, and so there's, those are theological themes to say that in, in the death of Jesus, the evil of this world has been undone. Satan has been undone. His dominion is undone. And then there's these moments, um, especially as they're progressing to the cross, where there's these constant flashback scenes to Jesus's teaching, where he says, you know, that greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And where he says, uh, he refers to the, the Lord's Supper, which is kind of regularly to this day commemorated in churches. And he says, you know, take, eat, this is my body, take, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And by interspersing those flashbacks, Gibson is giving us a, a way of interpreting what Jesus is doing, both kind of Jesus's intent and then kind of theologically how to understand this. And I think all of that's done really well. I think the way you start is what would I have done differently <laughs> to theologically, you know, what, what would I wish that he didn't admit? I think that resurrection scene, which we already talked about, if I had my druthers, I would have had a much more clear resurrection that was clear to everybody, especially those who don't already know the story, what's going on. And I, I would have done that theologically, because in the Christian tradition, it's the death of Jesus is what atones, is the technical word, or pays for our sin, for all wrongdoing, and grants us forgiveness before God. And the resurrection gives us the hope of life, uh, eternal life with God. And so you have half of that going on in this movie, and not really the other half. It wasn't intended to be, but it wasn't a full of theology. You know, if you put me in directing it, I, I might have thrown in a resurrection scene. You mentioned the the scene of, of Satan screaming, and I, that, that brings up an interesting point because I thought it was interesting that throughout the movie, we do see Satan periodically show up and almost egging on this process, tormenting Judas after he betrays Jesus and involved in the process in that way is what the implication that I got as, as I was watching. But then at the end, when things seem to go the way that 
Satan wanted, we see him screaming, right? Like, oh no, this actually went the way that I wanted it to. <laughs> so if you don't know more of the story, it gets lost in translation, I think there. That is very well stated. You're entirely correct. It's striking. It didn't occur to me until you said it. That's true. I, again, this goes back to a, a notion in Christian theology that, that's represented in the New Testament and expanded on later, that Jesus's death, which indeed the Gospels, there's, a, there's one mention, I will mention, uh, say this, there's one mention in the Gospel that uh, Satan entered Judas. And so it seems that Judas is inspired to accomplish his betrayal of Jesus by Satan. And one of the Gospels mentions this. And there, I don't, you know, I don't know that we're supposed to think demon possession or anything. It's just that Satan's effect is, it was heavy on Judas or something like that. So it's clear that Satan was pushing for this. And yet at the end, he didn't realize in a sense that this was part of God's plan all along. The interesting thing is this, that Satan seems to know in the movie on the front end that Jesus is suffering may actually be part of God's plan. There's no indication of that in the Gospels and kind of historic tradition. Satan seems to be blindsided by this. He produces this. And on the back end, he suddenly realizes that now Jesus, having accomplished this death, paying for sin and the resurrection, now Satan's actually defeated. And so that's coming in from Christian theology, in a sense, is accurate to the theology, um, but is, like you say, inexplicable to somebody who doesn't already bring that to the movie. Well, observed, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time to come on and chat about The Passion of the Christ. I know we've talked about a lot, but we've still only scratched the surface here. So for someone listening who wants to dive in deeper, can you share a little bit more about your work and where they can learn more? Yeah, if you're interested in my work, I've written a couple of pretty technical books on ancient sources on crucifixion. And so if somebody wants to read those, that's under David W. Chapman. One on ancient Jewish sources uh, about crucifixions in general in antiquity, and another about Greek and Roman sources about the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. I don't honestly think those are the easiest ways to reading about this. I think there's a a whole variety of authors that have uh, kind of engaged with these materials. I think some of my favorite would be somebody like Daryl Bach, who works at a teaching institution in, in Dallas, or another man by the name of Craig Keener, who has a, a great book on the historical Jesus. And then there's a writing by Scott McKnight on the death of Jesus that is, I think, very, very good. So there's a number of sources like that. There's, I mean, tons in the tradition. I think, I don't know if I know of any kind of recent evaluations of the Passion, um, but there was a lot that was done, you know, 15 years ago. And so, you know, you Google, you get stuff. Some of it's good. Some of it is just not worth reading. Some of it is, is um, uh, I think, unfortunately, people felt like you either have to really like the movie or not. And I, I think, you know, like with any good movie, you know, you, you want to appreciate the artistic achievement that's been realized there, even if you, you know, want to quibble with some of the differences, you know, the historical matters as well. So, Well, I think like what you had said earlier, you, we're talking about some of the texts that have been studied the most in human history. So, I mean, it happens with movies all the time that you're going to nitpick and you're going to pull things apart, but especially for a story like this one. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anybody who does this, and it's been true with every, almost every movie that comes out about Jesus, that there's always going to be people who like it and people who don't. And the percentages might change depending on what the artistic vision is. But yeah, you're asking, you're just asking for something if you do a movie about Jesus, because, you, you know, people are going to be looking at every scene 
and every portion of the scene and what's in behind the person in the scene and everything. So it's, we should just, you know, state some admiration that he took this on. And yeah, I, again, I think, you know, that we should you know, give a shout out to the cinematography. Ada Chanel, I think was the a cinematographer and the actors and uh, lighting. I mean, there's so much that went into making this movie. That's just very, very well done. I would say. Thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Dan, thank you. It's really fun to do this with you. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. I'd like to thank Dr. David Chapman once again for taking the time to help us separate fact from fiction in 2004's The Passion of the Christ. If you want to learn more about the historical side of the crucifixion of Jesus, David mentioned a few great starting points there, but I would also recommend checking out David's own books on the topic, including Trial and Crucifixion of Jesus, Text and Commentary, and Ancient Jewish and Christian Perceptions of Crucifixion. As always, you can find links to those books and more of his work in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the trial against Jesus was rushed because it was the day before a holy day. Number two, just like we see in the movie, Jesus was forced to carry both the vertical and horizontal crossbeams, while the other two prisoners carried only the horizontal beam. Number three, the beatings we see Jesus receive prior to the crucifixion were way more violent than what probably would have happened. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. The trial against Jesus was rushed because it was the day before a holy day. That is true. As David explained, even though there's evidence of growing tensions between temple leaders and Jesus that led up to his arrest, the final straw seemed to happen only a week prior to his arrest, and with the Holy Day coming up, they had to rush the trial and execution to take place before that. That brings us to number two. Just like we see in the movie, Jesus was forced to carry both the vertical and horizontal cross beams, while the other two prisoners carried only the horizontal beam. That's the lie. The movie shows Jesus holding both the vertical and horizontal beams, but David pointed out that even though there aren't a lot of sources that talk about prisoners condemned to be crucified being forced to carry their own crosses, those sources that do mention it clearly mention it being the horizontal beam, not both the horizontal and vertical beams like we see in the movie. That means number three is also true. The beatings we see Jesus receive prior to the crucifixion were way more violent than what would have probably happened. David brought up a good point, that it's not likely that they would have beaten a prisoner with sticks and then started the count of all over again with a new device like we see happen in the movie. And on top of that, as we learned, there's still debates among scholars about whether or not a cat of nine tails type device that we saw in the movie was even used by the ancient Romans. David also pointed out that some medical doctors have suggested the human body wouldn't even be able to take the sort of beating that we see happen in the movie. So, while any beating of prisoners prior to crucifixion would have been extremely violent, it probably wasn't as violent as the movie shows. That just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. My hope in sharing this information is to go beyond just my podcast, but hopefully you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to for free just a little bit more. Of course, I only have stats for my own show. So with that said, 
Today's episode took a total of 37 hours to create and cost $15.44 in out-of-pocket expenses. And as I always do, I want to make it clear that time and cost is only my time and cost for this one episode. In other words, that 37 hours does not include any of my guest time researching the subject matter we talked about, and it also doesn't include the time it takes for me to do podcast-related things that are not a part of creating this one episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the Based on a True Story website, uh, do social media, the email newsletter, and all those other little things outside creating a single podcast episode that are still required to make an overall show. Similarly, on the expenses side, that $15.44 is just for things specifically for this one episode. And quite honestly, that's one of the cheaper costs of creating a podcast because once you start to factor in things that are more one-time purchases but more expensive, like the cost of a microphone, audio interface, computer, software, and then there's still ongoing monthly costs for things like website hosting, podcast hosting, and so on. On average, all those things start to add up to costing really a few hundred dollars out of pocket each and every month. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. And that's why I'm so thankful for the sponsors whose ads you've heard in this episode. You can find more information about them over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash advertisers. But they're not the only ones helping to keep the show alive. There are wonderful people just like you who are helping to keep this show financially going. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider helping to support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. As a bonus, you'll get access to the producer's feed, which, as of this recording, has over 65 exclusive minisodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes like this one. You can find out how to get access to all of that by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. And I'll chat with you again really soon.